Hello and welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things relating to your well-being, ranging from nutrition to physical and mental health and my five-minute food fact series. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host and nutritionist with a passion for well-being. Please note that although I will often be speaking with experts, any information or advice provided in Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast is not intended to be used to treat cure or prevent injuries or medical conditions and is not a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. Today I'm excited to be chatting to an old friend from university days, three times Olympian, Hamie Fernandez. We'll be discussing the pathway of an elite sports person from the point of view of Hamie's own journey and also from the viewpoint of Hamie's current role at Rowing Australia where he oversees the High Performance Program as Deputy High Performance Director. I love hearing about what it takes to make it to the top in a particular sport, in this case rowing. It is a lot more than simply training hard, as we'll hear about from Hamy. So Hamy, today I'd like to talk about the pathway of an elite sports person, and in this case the sport of rowing, from the grassroots level to the Olympic medal winning, and what it takes to get there. So obviously there are many attributes like talent, um, determination to work hard, and there are so many more factors I believe that play into success like having a supportive family, especially for a young rower, a good coach, fueling properly with optimal nutrition, and having some psychological support. So I imagine it's a fairly delicate balance to make sure all those pieces of the puzzle fit together at the right time. So to start off, let's talk about your personal journey as an Australian rower. And I believe you almost fell into rowing. So can you tell us how and when you started? Yeah, thanks firstly, Amanda, for having me on today. Um, it's a pleasure. I think fell in is probably not a bad way of putting it. I mean, <laughs> albeit we don't want to fall out of the boat, obviously. No. We want to stay in. Um, but, yeah, certainly, you know, my, my background was perhaps um, – Perhaps it was probably very different to what uh, the traditional pathway might have been for an athlete at that point in time mm -hmm. back in the late 80s. I grew up in Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory. So one would suggest probably as far away from rowing as you could imagine. Yeah. Um, certainly no private schools, um, no waterways that you would put a boat on, um, like a rowing craft. Um, and there was probably lots of other things in the water that you're looking to avoid yeah. <laughs> rather than hopping, hopping into it. <laughs> definitely staying above it was a, a priority. So, yeah, definitely fell into it. Just And it's a little bit of a long yarn, but but I was playing senior football from an early age. Uh, a gentleman um, had moved to the Northern Territory to Nullarbor or Gove, as the town is mm -hmm. called, in Arnhem Land. Um, he had previously played in the VFA, which was at the time the level below the AFL. Uh, he turned up at training one day wearing a green and gold long sleeve, which, you know, I thought it was a wee bit peculiar at the time considering, you know, probably still 26, 27, 28 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> um, may have been a bit wet and rainy, so it was a bit cold. But it was a green and gold long sleeve and it had a badge on the front of it. And, and this man had taken uh, myself and another young player, and we were only um, 13 at the time, under his wing and was looking after us as we were playing against all these big burly miners, um, <laughs> trying to stay out of trouble. <laughs> and I remember asking him the question, what was the, what's the deal with long sleeve? And, and what's the, is it rowing? I could see the badge and he said, what's the deal with the, the rowing this sport? And he explained it and he'd coached in Melbourne, he'd coached at a, an Australian um, underage level and to be honest I didn't think much of it mm -hmm. I sort of dismissed it sort of pretty quickly out of hand and got back onto training and, and and away we went I had to leave the territory due to family illness my brother was really quite sick with leukemia um, and uh, we had to make a decision as a family as to where we might move to be that mm -hmm. Melbourne or Adelaide um, they chose Adelaide um, I managed to stay in the territory by myself for a little bit. Somehow I convinced my parents to leave me there. Um, so still this journey of rowing was a long way away. Yeah, right? yeah. And growing up in, as I did in the territory, you know, you didn't spend a lot of time inside. You didn't, I didn't know about the Olympics. I didn't know about the Commonwealth Games and things like that. Um, they were sort of things a long way from my 
sort of thought process or, or dreams or ambitions. And also um, AFL's not part of that, so you're not going to be exposed through that. Uh, definitely not. AFL was not sort of one of those things that you um, were going to the games, but you know, AFL was the passion at the time, as were many other sports, because that was one of the beauties of growing up in this most amazing place. Um, you had It was incredibly isolated, but by virtue of that, you had lots of people who really took it upon themselves as volunteers, as the mums and dads, to set up sports um, to provide you with experience. Mm. Um, and so I, it probably isn't a sport they hadn't had a go at at one point in time through my 15 years in the Territory. But the rowing side came. I, I had to go to find a school in Adelaide when my parents eventually convinced me to leave the Territory. Uh, we went to the first school, and this was an interesting one because there's lots of different pathways by which athletes ultimately get to where they get to, um, probably like any person in a, mm. in a profession. Um, first school, basically, we walked in. It's my mother, my brother, who wasn't looking too flash at the time. Um, we basically had day release out of the hospital. We walked into the registrar's office, and, and within a few minutes, she effectively said, um, we don't take people like you here. Um, yeah. You know. In what so that sense? Was in... Like because you're from the Territory or because? Well, look, I don't know, Amanda. I, it was interesting because, I, you know, we probably looked a bit rough and ready. Um Mum may have put my rap sheet up and not my academic transcript. I don't know. There was clearly something about the vibe we were giving off that effectively just said, no, this place isn't for you. And, and we sort of walked out between our legs, headed back oh. to the hospital. But unbeknownst Gosh. to us, the, the young man who was in the isolation room next to my brother, who had, interestingly enough, the same form of leukaemia, which was quite unusual and rare um, for a young person, he went to a local school in the city. Uh, they saw us come back, they asked the question and they said, oh, well, leave it with us, we'll, we'll call the school, which happened to be Christian Brothers College in Wakefield Street. And um, they said, yeah, sure, bring him down, we'll, we'll catch up with him tomorrow and we'll have a conversation. And uh, and so here I was walking into the this headmaster's office. Um, headmaster at the time was a big man. He had this Billy Idol sort of spiked hair, <laughs> pretty impressive, posing-looking gentleman. But the first thing he did was, in complete contrast to the day before, he walked over and he put his hand out and said, oh, what can I do for you? Oh, how lovely. And I thought, wow, a completely different approach yeah. well, to dealing with someone. That's a place where you'd obviously probably much rather be in any event <laughs> where you're welcomed. Absolutely. And so he sat down and he asked us our story. He, he took the time to listen he was really quite considerate um, and sort of told him the journey that I'd been on, our family had been on, which was a quite a challenging one at that point in time, and effectively said, oh, you know what, I think this place is for you. Wow. Yeah, and we'd love you to be part of our community. Oh, you're um, almost moving me to tears and we've only been yeah. speaking for a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, look, and it certainly brought mum to tears. I mean, yeah. it, it's sort of even me being a bit rough and very much a bush kid, um, sort of even I stopped it and thought, wow, he's a different person. Mm. And I think my story is punctuated by stories like that or moments like that where I, I was very self-determining. I had to look after myself quite a bit. I stayed in the Territory by myself, lived yeah. in the house by myself and my parents and my brother moved to Adelaide for a period of time. But I always had some really important people take me under their wing or show me care and concern and look after me and, and here was another one of those examples so so basically he said rightio you have to play a sport in winter and summer I, clearly footy was winter mm. um summer looked on the list and lo and behold there was this sport of rowing and i said oh could i have a go at that <laughs> and of course you know he's and even I, I felt a wee bit sort of bold and sort of even thinking i could have a go of it because i still wasn't really sure i just saw the word the name, yeah. and, I, and I thought, oh, and I do remember the conversation then, you know, I recalled that conversation with this guy in the footy team and, and probably an important bit of information prior to me ticking that was when I left the Territory, um, this gentleman and I had actually both um, shared the best and fairest in a grand final that year, um, me being the young buck and him the old bull. And, mm -hmm. But when I left, he left a trophy on my bed and he had a sticker on it. And he basically said, look, I want to wish you the best of luck in your life. 
um, whatever you choose to do, you'll be really great at it. And don't ever let anyone tell you you can't. Oh, wow. And so I took that with me, yeah. that message. I shared that with the principal. And he sort of, again, again, he showed such sort of considered grace and wisdom. Mm. He just sat there and he just went, hmm, let me think about it. And he said, because most kids have started rowing in year seven, you're coming into year 11, and you effectively have about three terms of rowing to try and pick this up and before you finish. And he said, look, it, it won't be easy, but leave it with me. Uh, next day I'm sitting there, so take this as a picture. I usually was in barefoot, maybe a garbage bag as a raincoat to get to school. <laughs> um, uniform wasn't mandatory. Um, if I went to I went to school because footy was played at lunchtime and recess. That were my goals. Um, certainly didn't do any study. Didn't read a book. Um, <laughs> so completely different priorities. To here I am sitting in the front office in poly shoes, full suit, a tie, which I had no idea. Must have felt weird. It was so odd catching two buses when I normally walked across the road to school. So I was a fish out of water. Um, I'm waiting there for the fall master. And this man by the name of Grant Bennett walks past. And Benno, as we knew him, he was a teacher at the school. He happened to be the head of rowing too. And clearly the headmaster had listened to the story, had shared the journey and the story I'd been on with Grant or Benno. He looks me up and down. You know, I was a reasonable sized kid. Um, and he sort of said, no, so I hear you want to have a go at rowing. Why? Again, it wasn't just dismissed. They actually yeah. wanted to understand the story of why I would wanted to choose this obscure sport that I had no idea about. <laughs> um, and it was quite a unique sport, as you know. Well, mm. uh, So I explained it and he said, rightio, there's a ute out the back of the shed. You'll see a heap of kids mingling around this ute. Throw your bag in the back and run to the five, five k's down to the Torrens River where the shed is and we'll see how you go. And wow. I loved it from the first stroke I took. The rest so. is history as we're going yeah, to find that, out. Yeah, that's how I got into rowing. It was quite opportune that you met certain people at certain times in your life, wasn't it, that Absolutely. kind of steered you in that direction? Because as you say, it is a certainly back in the 80s, it was a reasonably obscure sport. It's not something that everyone's thinking, oh, wow, I want to try rowing. Because, I mean, back then it probably didn't have such a high profile. So you said... You loved it from the day you started and did you continue? Um, did you continue through school to university? And, again, you, you know what CBC was like. It was a smaller school. It had been rowing for a long time. Yeah. But we didn't have a, a large amount of rowers. And, and and when I think about it, you know, I could sort of think about the nine of us who were ultimately in our first eight at the time. 50% of us had rowed, 50 of us haven't. But somehow we managed to mesh and mesh this sort of interesting group of individuals plus this great coach and Slim Lawrence and Benno as, and other support people into a really competitive crew that ultimately won the head of the river. Oh, wow. Out of, out of this tiny little place. And the school had only ever won it one other time Do you know, in its history. For people listening um, in other states or other countries, that's really incredible because in South Australia there's some incredibly well-funded schools <laughs> with lots of boys and they bring them back um, after year 12 for an extra year so they can continue to row. So these kids have all the advantages. So for a smaller school like the one Hamy was at to actually win, is it's a big deal. Yeah, it was, but it was just so much fun. Like we we had really, for the time, innovative sort of coaches. They, they did some different things with us in terms of how we trained, the way we trained, and they clearly recognised that we had some talent mm. and some kids who were really driven and wanting to do a good job. And, and we loved the, the idea of going up against perhaps the more fancied uh, traditional rowing schools who had had lots of success and, and there were some fabulous ones. But I guess because of that experience um, and, and the fact that I did love the sport, from the first stroke and, and lots of it, parts of it resonated with me, the physicality, the yeah. team work, the, the, you know, the friendships that came with it, you know, the rigour and toil associated yeah. with it. It was something that I reveled in and I really enjoyed and I, I never shied away from that and I thought that was just fabulous. And then there's the competition and the history. Um, and so I, all of those things went into this melting pot to make me think, you know, I really like this sport. 
Although I have to say, probably Aussie rules or AFL was still the sport that I wanted to pursue. Yeah. Um, because again, um, I wasn't a kid who had a list up on his wall with all these goals and things that I was ticking off or wanting to achieve. I, I still really hadn't twigged about what other opportunities might be in sport. And I didn't necessarily think about the Olympic Games or those types of things. Um, they weren't part of my thinking. However, um, I was fortunate enough to have a coach that probably saw some of those things in with me. Yeah. Um, he then set about uh, setting up an opportunity to introduce me to Adelaide University Boat Club. Um, and that was a setup because they sort of, they tried to get me down for a row. I, I agreed to. I thought I was just going to fill in one day. Um, <laughs> I was already in pre-season training with footy and stuff. Um, Michael Southcott, who we both know, Southie, <laughs> supposedly was unwell or injured and I had to fill in for him. Um, and, and Michael became a great friend and his family, great supporters of mine. So I, I was then had this experience manufactured. I jumped in, I enjoyed it. And before I knew it, I was involved in this fabulous club. Um, there were some wonderful people yeah. that we both know, um, men and women who were rowing at that time. And they just made the sport um, interesting, exciting, enjoyable. Um, and so it felt like a natural transition to continue doing that for a period of time, even though it was a really short period of time. Because before I knew it, I was going from there to the AIS all within a period of 12 months from yeah, school. Um, that's extraordinary. And, and away I went. And I'll just say, so the Adelaide University Boat Club is where Hamie and I crossed paths, where we met. And I have to second what you said. When, I, when my kids asked me, you know, what were some of the best things you've ever done, I put rowing right up there. It was just so much fun, that sort of work ethic, I think, has stood me and everyone I know in really good stead since those days. Um, and just a quick question, Hamie, for anyone from AUBC who's listening to this, were you ever mentioned in the SFW book? No, I've never had the, <laughs> me um, either. <laughs> the distinction of being in there. Probably for good. <laughs> it's a good thing, I think, isn't it? I think it's a very good thing. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure there were plenty others who um, were having far more fun than us. Yeah, yeah. anyway. Uh, but good people, very good people. It was. So then, as you said, you, you took up a scholarship at the AIS and you've gone on to have a very successful and distinguished rowing career. You've rowed in, I think it's nine Australian rowing championships, including the King's Cup, and you've variously represented South Australia and the ACT. You've represented Australia on the world stage for the best part of a decade, I think. Is that correct? Mm, something like that, yep. yeah. Um, you competed in five uh, world rowing championships, um, usually in a, a coxed eight, but I think once in a four. You've mm -hmm. competed in the Commonwealth Games and three Olympic Games, which include Barcelona in 92, Atlanta in 96 and 2000 Sydney, where you won a silver medal. You came second to the Brits by 0.8 of a second, I think. I watched that race the other day. Oh, my gosh. My, even though I knew the result, my heart was in my mouth, I have to say. I try and avoid watching it, but that's another story. Oh. <laughs> but it must have been amazing to be on the podium in your own country. I mean, that's like a dream come true. Absolutely. It all three games were fabulous experiences um, and I guess if I could encourage everyone and anyone to be involved somehow, some way, be it a volunteer, coach, administrator or, or athlete if you're, if you're fortunate enough to um, have that opportunity, it's an amazing experience. Um, and as I said, all three games were very different. Yeah. 92 in Barcelona was a place that had some um, real significance for me because my father's Spanish, um, so being able to go to Spain and obviously Barcelona was just wonderful and it was my first games um, and I'd been on such a, I guess, short and sharp trajectory mm. from picking up an oar, as I said, in, in <laughs> year 11 to a few years later walking into Olympic Stadium. Incredible. Um, was still something I probably at the time didn't appreciate um, how quickly that all occurred. But it was great, Atlanta again. Um you know, very different games to what Barcelona was, but then Sydney was this sort of 
incredible experience where people just embrace the games and oh, the spirit of it. Amazing, yeah. And everyone speaks of the volunteers, and, and it's it's so true. Um, everywhere you went, people wanted to help. Yeah, people were just so enthused with the spirit of um, you know the games, if, if want of a better sort of term. Um, but to actually compete in your own country, which is a real rarity, um, and, and you know. It's, great good fortune to even go to one game let alone the three but then to have a games in your country and compete at that amazing um yeah like nothing else than having your family and friends and um the support and you know of the australian people yeah uh, it was an extraordinary time i i was living in sydney at the time and i just recall how the atmosphere of the city was just unbelievable Everybody, almost without exception, was so friendly. It was mm. just a, an amazing time to be there. And as you said, the volunteers were unbelievable. Everyone felt really welcome. It was just such an extraordinary time to, to be living in Sydney. I was I did go out and watch the rowing. Um, my memory's not good because I was uh, eight months pregnant or something. <laughs> So I can't remember which races I saw now, but I just loved being out there in the atmosphere of it all. It was quite electric, really. It was. So do you remember, Hamy, how you felt the moment you crossed the line and then later when it had all sunk in? Yes and no. It was pretty exhausting, obviously, and and maybe to provide some colour and context of what it's like. So, you know, even... I can still remember walking into the um, rowing centre for the first time and the games had started properly. And we'd done lots of visualisation and preparation to sort of get a, I guess, get a feel for what it might sounded like, smelt like, tasted like, you know, what it might look like visually. Um, But I don't think anything prepared you for when you first stepped foot in and it was like, wow, okay, this is really going to happen. We're, We're going to race and... I remember going out for our um, heat and we you know every athlete or sport has some form of preparation they do in a warm-up and we had this plan and all the rest of it and we hopped in the boat and we went off to do our first warm-up piece and it was just perfect and and I remember talking I was stroking the boat talking to the coxswain going well I'm not sure we need to do too much more that's about it and I think we were just so ready and prepared mm. for it. We'd been to the opening ceremony um, a couple of nights earlier, which I think allowed us to actually lean into the experience yeah. and really embrace what we were about to face because we would, we'd we actually quite purposely trained everywhere and moved around a bit to just keep ourselves fresh. So we'd been to Mwollumbar um, near Kingscliff um, on, you know, up, up, up near the Tweed. We trained in Bundaberg in Queensland. We trained in Penrith. We're training Canberra. We've been overseas. So we didn't have one set base. We've been everywhere. It yeah. was almost like you felt like you were getting further removed from what was about to happen. So we made some really important decisions, i.e. attending the opening ceremony, yeah. which, I said, sort of started to build that excitement, then walking into the centre and then going out into the boat. And as I said, the boat was really singing. We didn't do any more warm-up and we in Penrith. You, you enter the course from the warm-up black about 750 metres from the start and different to the normal pattern of the course um, for, for general purpose, you actually rode across the course to the far side. Unbeknownst to us, the one thing we hadn't prepared for was just how m- many people were there and how far the crowd actually came up the course. Yeah. So we were paddling across and next thing you know, it erupted. I sort of went, whoa, you know, it was almost like <laughs> brace yourself and your heart rate went through the roof and, you know, of course you're going through, you're going, okay, calm, breathe, it's all going to be okay, you know, you're nervous and shaky. So you paddle up to the start line, you, you paddle, you put your stern into the starting blocks then they do the roll call and they call each country and mm-hmm. then, of course, it hits Australia and this wave oh of sound just washes up the course and almost just envelops you and you're, Everything spikes again. Your heart rate goes up. And, you know, the hairs on your arms stand on end. Um, and you're getting ready to go. And, of course, they say go. And away you go down that course. And it was the same in the final. Uh, the, probably the difference being in the final, we were, as you've alluded to, we were in a bit of a dogfight right toward the end. Yeah. We were, we unfortunately started really poorly. 
and we were a long way behind early. And the eight is travelling so fast and it has so much speed, it takes a long time to overcome the inertia and momentum of another crew. And so we just were just ever so slowly coming right. back and towards the end we were coming back faster and faster. And as you can imagine, the crowd is just roaring. So you can't actually hear anything else. Um, and you're also in a fair state of exhaustion. Yeah. And I, I'm looking at the cox and I'm the closest person. I can see he's saying something but it just looks like he's mouthing words. I can't actually hear exactly what he's saying. So we had a little signal. He would start to slap the side of the boat to let us know um, key points towards the end where we had to just basically go up, up, up and wind to the line. And, of course, my job as the stroke was to go yes. up, 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 if I could, and keep driving. Um, and it's almost like those last bits just get blocked out. You, you just hear the banging on the boat and wow. you're just going for it as, as much as you can. I didn't know where we'd finished. Um, I wasn't sure of our placing. Um, I just felt exhausted and probably over overwhelmed by the fatigue. Um, and then Dan Burke was in seven seat behind. I sort of said to him, where did we finish? And he said, oh, I think second. Um, and, and, you know, there's a moment there of going, you know what, we'd set our whole campaign up around winning. That had been it. And we initially it might have been a wishful dream, um, but as we progressed through the season, it was clear we had the capacity to do that. Yes. Or we are going to come very close, which point out of a second is very close. And we'd oh been in a real so close. hustle and struggle with the British 8 all, all year um, and they were the better crew on the day. But, you know, maybe after initially sort of that you have a moment of, oh, we didn't achieve exactly what we wanted to achieve there's also that other moment of going wow what a journey it's been yeah and, and you know and how proud look what we did achieve yeah look and and you know like any athlete who's been working so hard towards yeah. something sometimes you just need some time to reflect um and compose yourself and to you know at the end of the day it's just sport um it's not you know yeah. It's just sport. I, it is I guess. just sport, so, but but you pour your heart and soul into it. You and your, do. Your life is basically that is your life. So well and truly, mm. well, yeah, complete devotion to it in so so many ways. In terms of devotion, you you certainly don't have devoted your life to rowing. Yeah. After the two thousand and Olympics, I understand that you retired from competitive rowing. But you really never left because you've held several roles at Rowing Australia and currently you're the Deputy High Performance Director there. So before we chat about that and what you do there, can you just tell us a little bit about Rowing Australia, what the vision is and what's its mission? Absolutely. Yeah, look, I've been very fortunate that the sport has remained a part of my life. I ultimately um, became a teacher. Um, and then through my teaching, I've been involved in rowing programs in schools. Um, I've said a few times, I think if you cut me, I'd bleed rowing. Um, <laughs> but I've been so fortunate to have had the opportunities I had, be they as an athlete or a volunteer or mm. as a coach, and, and now in this role as the, the Deputy Performance Director. Um, and, and that role really encompasses a lot of our pathway. Um, so working with the states and territories, working with our young athletes. Um, so it's a real privilege. Um, at the same time too, I think it's sort of been a, I've devoted a lot of my time and effort into it as well. And so yeah. I think whatever you put in, you often will get back out. Yeah. So I think it's been a real beneficiary for both of, both sides of the ledger, I would suggest. Um, but I guess Rowing Australia is a fabulous organisation, real privilege to be a part of. Um, our vision is to be the number one rowing nation in the world mm. and the top Olympic sport. So they're lofty ambitions, uh, lofty goals. But Why not? We're Aussies. Why not? You know, yeah. What's that quote? You know, you shoot for the stars and if you hit the moon or something like that. Um, you know. The awesome foursome certainly did a lot for Australian rowing in terms of rowing, raising the awesome, profile. Yeah didn't they? So. Yeah, well and truly. Look, they were, and I was fortunate to row through that era. And, you know, those sort of gentlemen and their 
who were involved in that and there were a couple of different changes along their journey from 1990 through to 96 when they they won the second gold medal and, and other people like the Peter Antonys of the world yeah. and Reinhold Barchi's, um who was, you know, obviously our head coach and really changed the the direction of the sport when he was brought in by John Coates and John Bolpe in the late 70s. Um, then to our modern athletes, the Kim Brennans or, or Kate um, Slatter, Kate as she Slatter, was known the there. Yeah. Paris, and yeah. Megan Marks in the pair in 96. Um, so we've been really blessed to have some incredible athletes. Um, and our current ones are just amazing. The amount of work they do, their commitment to the sport, the success that they've had under our new structure. Um, yeah, it's just remarkable. I really admire them greatly. So, Hamie, what do you do? What's your role involved? Yeah, look, my, my role entails looking after, effectively, there's eight programs, and I'll talk a little bit about those, but there's seven Australian-based programs. So in every state and territory, being the mm-hmm. ACT, we have a rowing program. And that rowing program is basically a, a, a tri-party sort of agreement between the state sporting organisation. So in South Australia, where we went to school, there's the, um, obviously um, Rowing SA, and then there's SASI, the South Australian Sports Institute, and then there's ourselves. And those three key stakeholders come together to support um, aspiring our athletes in what we call our pathway. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we look to identify good young talent. We, we endeavour to support them, develop them, and ideally retain them in the system for a long period of time because that's a really important thing. You know, rowing, you can row for a long time. Yeah. And, in fact, you have to row for a long time to build that motor, that engine, the maturity. Um, and statistically, you know, a bit like myself, I was 28 when, 27, 28 when I won my medal. That's actually statistically um, pretty consistent with what we see. And you've often had to have attended more than one Olympic Games. So you have to be prepared to commit yeah, quite a bit. And so... That's right. And, and my, I guess my role is to work with those key state partners, as I said, across the country um, to help set up a systemised approach to identifying young talent, supporting yeah. young talent mm-hmm. and then retaining young talent in our system for the long term. So I've got two questions about that. How do you actually identify the talent? Can you look at somebody and tell whether they you know, if you watch someone rowing, can you think, oh, that, you know, person in number three seat's got real potential or is it a bit more than that? Yeah, look, it, it, it would love it to be that. That would be mm. great. But as you know, there's so many different things. And, and in our yeah. sport, yeah, we're looking for typically long levers. So you're going to be of a certain height, yeah. certain arm length. More often than not, you're looking for longer legs and shorter body, you know. So so there, there are some anthropometrical requirements that you can go along and say, look, that, that might be the ideal body type yes. or shape or um, anthropometrics that might suit. Um, then there is the, the engine, so the cardiovascular um, capacity and ability or the VO2 max. Yeah. You know, are they an endurance-based athlete? Um, you know, you might find young person who does really well at the 1,500 metres in running or across country at school, um, and you go, okay, well, that's maybe the type of engine. In AFL, you know, we'd probably be those um, tall, lean, um, running half-back or half-forward yeah. line or wingers, uh, ruckman, you know, that, those types of body shapes and types. Um, but can you actually predict? I don't, I, it's not so simple to predict because there's these other things that you need and that really important thing is called grit. Yes, um, yes. So what's that internal fortitude like as a person? What sort of resilience? Um, yeah. How can they overcome setbacks, get back up off the canvas? So you might have the most complete um, physical capacity um, in the world, but if you don't have that drive yeah. and passion and capacity to actually um, utilise what genetics has provided you, yeah. then it's pretty tough. So it's, it's not an exact science, but clearly you need certain things. You, know, you, yes. you need the body type. You need power. Yes. You need endurance. I, I love that's one of the reasons I love reading um, biographies and autobiographies of sports people because it's that the fascinating thing for me is that grit. 
you know, that that ability to keep going even when it's tough. But the second question I had about your, your role is you talked about working with the stakeholders and so you've got the seven different institutes in all the states. Do you have some kind of, um, I guess, common sort of coaching strategy or style? So when um, people do arrive at the AIS, they've got a similar um, sort of understanding of how to approach rowing. You don't want to have completely different styles and then trying to undo everything. And <laughs> I don't know, Does yeah. it, how does that work? Yeah, look, and that's probably the other bit when you're talking about talent and how, you know, what's the athletic acumen of a young person? Can they pick things up quickly? Yeah. You know, do they have touch, feel? Um, because the thing that's probably not relatively well understood about our sport, to me, our sport, people think of it as a physical sport, whereas I probably think of it as a technical sport. Yes. Um, I understand you need the physicality, but you need to have the ability to apply that physicality to move a very narrow piece of material of carbon um, you need to um, have absolute synchronicity to the other people if you're in yeah. a crew boat outside of the single um, you need to make sure your blades go in the water at the same time you need to do all those sorts yeah. of things to ensure that the boat's going to move efficiently and effectively so for me rowing is about timing um, as much as it is about more. anything it's about grace it's about feel and touch yeah um, can't deny the physicality you need that um but I think when you combine those two, and we spoke about some of the great athletes we've had, well, they had those things. They had they had physicality, um, they had great genetics, they had trainability, they had grit, mm. um, and they were able to apply that into moving a boat really well, you know. Um, and Drew Ginov talked about, you know, will it make the boat go faster? You know, so how do you do that? It, it, it Look, it's, it's an interesting thing, yes, we, we do have a technical model um, and there, there are even in our two national training centres now, we have the, the men based in Canberra and the women in Penrith and they do have some differences in the style of how they row. The, the job in the pathway is about developing a generalised skill set. Yeah, It's ensuring that there are some consistencies in the way that we want to move a boat. Some of the basics about the sequencing of the stroke mm. cycle um, the type of training that people do. So that's, again, part of our role is providing guidance about training principles, about technical principles, yeah. about even things around sort of putting the right people with the right people. Mm. So when they, a young athlete does ultimately transition um, from the pathway into a national training centre, it's really then that the role of that that top end that will say, okay, now we want you to fit a particular type of style or mould. Um, what we need to do is set them up well and, and what we call NTC ready them, you know, get what them ready for mean? the NTC. Well, our national training centres, okay. we, we want to develop a, a young athlete who's agile, robust, um, has taken care of their vocation and or studies, whatever it might be. We think really holistically about the athlete yeah, in the excellent. pathway. You know, we, we want and we understand that the life load of a young person is quite tricky and challenging. They're very busy. There's lots going on. There's lots of things that pull on their time. Um, you know, we want them to uh, set themselves up for the long term. We want them to maintain friendships and relationships. Yeah. So we know they're probably going to work. They have to commute in busy cities, and we want them to train. Yes, there's. <laughs> so, you're right. There's a lot of moving pieces there that need to fit absolutely. together. Yep. Yep. But I like the way you said you look at the, you take a holistic approach because as tragic as it can be, people can get injured and you don't want someone to sort of end up with, you know, having put all their eggs, for example, in the rowing basket, have an injury and then have nothing. So you do need to look after them, you know, into the future. I mean, hopefully that won't happen, but. Oh, look, yeah, I agree. It can. But you you mentioned uh, the training and coordinating that. So I think one of the things that, that I loved about rowing and that fascinates me is how much training rowers, and we'll talk about elite rowers here, actually do. So could you give us a bit of a rundown of what a typical training week like might look like for some elite athletes in your program? Yeah, just as a, I guess as a general view, um, 
most rowers who once they're sort of moving into that upper end of the pathway, you know, say in the under 23 space and then into our national training centre space, um, they do a significant amount of work. Um, mm. And, you know, they train most days twice a day. Um, you know, typically you have a traditional, you have a Sunday off, um, but all the other six days of the week you're training um, probably a minimum of twice. And in our senior programs, often they will do three sessions a day on various days, depending on um, where they are in a periodised program. Um, so it's a, it's a significant commitment that you're signing up for. Um, and those sessions can um, go from anywhere between, depending on what it might be, anywhere from an hour, 90 minutes, up to two hours, two and a half hours, uh, and, and longer if they're out on the bike. And there are various modalities that we use as well. So clearly there's the on-water component. Um, and a lot of our senior athletes will do a lot of work in the single skull before they transition um, to a little bit later in the season into their crew boats. Um, we encourage that in the pathway as well because the single is a great training tool. Yes. It's you against you. Yes. Um, <laughs> so the load is yours to carry and you need to work that out. And so there's a physical element with that, but there's also a mental and a technical component. So it's a great training tool. Um, there's the ergometer. Um, so that horrible black machine that oh, doesn't float. I still shudder um, when I think of those things. Yeah, some people love them, some people don't, but it's a great tool because it's so efficient. Mm. It's stable. The score is the score. Um, you can control the variables really easily um, and you can get a really efficient workout. So, you know, many of our rowers will be utilising ergometers um, as part of their training. Uh, I mentioned cycling. So you know, cycling, sort of towards mid part of my career as a rower, cycling became quite a fashionable thing and a lot of rowers started yeah. to do quite a lot of miles. And, and that continues. Clearly there's things with injury and you've got to be yeah, careful on exactly. that side of things. Um, and then there's the strength and conditioning side where typically, you know, on average you're probably in the gym three times a week um, building that sort of core strength, those key sort of skills, um, developing your body, making sure you're robust to do all that other work. Yeah. Uh, and then running would be another component that some athletes would use um, depending on where they are in the season, depending on their own personal makeup and things like that. Yeah. Um, so it's quite a load in terms of what our athletes will, will go yeah. through and they then need to commit to that. Um, you know, it's, it's like 11 and a half months of the year program and you get a couple of weeks off over Christmas to recover or maybe a couple of weeks post to major championships. But 11 months of the year plus, you, you are working consistently and it, and it varies obviously depending on the time of year and the type of work and the modality and how much time you might spend on a particular aspect. Um, but it's pretty consistent in terms of frequency, yes. load, etc. And et that's all coordinated in such a way, I guess, to minimise the chance of injury. So you're varying the types of activities throughout the week. Is that correct? Yeah, well, you, you do. You probably you more look at it from the perspective of what type of work do you need to get done. Right. Uh, and there's no denying you have to do quite a considerable amount of work. They're managing things like injuries, et cetera. Um, well, there, clearly there's the, um, the physio, the massage, the yeah. soft tissue. Um, they play a critical um, part in ensuring athletes can stay on the water. Mm -hmm. um, nutrition, obviously yeah. fueling the system really well with the right types of fuels means that you're able to, you know, ensure there's enough energy yeah. in the body to recover and repair just from normal training, let alone injury. Um, but there's also athletes being self-aware, um, self-managing as well in terms of making sure they they understand their bodies well yeah. and they do all the little things really well with the flexibility, the stretching, the warm-up, the cool-down, um, whether it's getting soft tissue work to make sure their bodies remain supple, um, and then there's the, the, the load management aspect of understanding what an individual athlete um, might require and what might be their little quirks and nuances mm -hmm. and how you manage that load to ensure that they can do all the work you require, ideally avoid injury, yes. um, but keep being able to stress the system so it develops and, yeah. and improves. In terms of injury, are there 
injuries that are more common in rowers than others? Like are they more likely to suffer, for example, from a shoulder injury or what are the most likely injuries for a rower? Yeah, look, typical injuries, um, there's a couple in particular. Um, so there's uh, intersection syndrome with, with rowers' forearms. Right. Um, and, again, I'm not a medical person, oh, no, so I won't just pretend sort of to. looking for a um, flavour of what, yeah, that, you know, you yeah. might be, you know, trying to watch out for. Yeah. So typically that comes with load and grip, mm-hmm. um, things like that. Um, so the forearm then struggles to be able to maintain grip. Uh, and so I guess it's like a, a, a tendonitis that occurs yeah. within that forearm. So that's one type of injury. Uh, lower backs. Um, typically with rowers because they're under so much load, there's yeah. so much mileage, and they're always in a flex position yeah. when that load is at its greatest through the catch. Um, and then notwithstanding then the load that comes from doing things like squatting, um, ergo use. Um, so those sorts of things can really tighten stress, the hip flexors, the glutes, the hamstrings, um, the back muscles, which which means that, you know, you need to be really cognizant of that. Um, really taking care of it um, to ensure that you can try and avoid that. And then probably the third one is um, rib stress injury. Right. Um, so through our rib cages, the load, you know, the boat's carbon, the oar's carbon, so, and they're really quite stiff materials. And so the load that goes through the oar and the boat has to transfer somewhere and that comes through the handle into the body. And so if you get really stiff um, thoracically um, through your rib cage and through that region, stresses then can come out onto the rib itself and I see. and create some hot spots and different things. So they're probably the three injuries that we need to be really mindful of and try and prepare athletes for. And typically they come, so the, the, the rib stress typically comes when we have sudden changes in load. Right. Um, so you might have had a quieter period or in this COVID experience, lots of athletes are off water yeah. or can't access gyms um they could still at least probably do the ergo if there's if it's available so they can maintain a load on their rib cage Mm -hmm. which is important but typically it's when there's spikes in load or changes in load and and they probably just haven't managed things as well as perhaps um could have or things like that or on the ergometer true of any sport really isn't it Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, have you had any injuries, any that have kept you out of the boat or have you been lucky? Well, I was pretty robust as an athlete, yeah. so I was sort of a bit bomb-proof, really. Yeah. Um, maybe was that was the bush, do, the bush upbringing, yeah, have, sort of rough and ready. Yeah. Maybe I just didn't work hard enough to, who knows. Sure but that's um, not true. <laughs> the, the, uh, my injury, though, came post. And it was probably because I didn't, at the time, I have to say, I I didn't really ever have to miss sessions. Um, As I said, I was pretty robust. I could do basically everything that was required of me. But it wasn't until years later when I'd stopped rowing that, uh, unbeknownst to me, um, had a back, uh, a bit of a suspect back that ultimately went. Um, You know, and I remember a doctor saying, look, if we knew that at the time, we wouldn't have had you row or do deep squats. And I went, okay, I'm not sure I would have changed anything no. um, is the reality. So, yeah, I have a, had a lower back injury. You know, I use a stand-up desk. Um, I, I make sure I'm sort of still maintaining my own well-being um, yes. to ensure that it doesn't create any issues. So you manage it. In fact, that, that is one of the questions I do want to ask you is how do you keep fit to these days? What do you do? Yeah, well, when I retired, I went back to playing AFL and rugby. So <laughs> I, I just loved it. It was great, great fun. And I wish I still could, to be honest. But um, but no, look, I, I um, exercise every day. Yeah. Uh, if I'm not in, I'm very fortunate. I've got a great home gym um, that I can go in and do, do some basic, um, probably strength and conditioning type exercise, which I find helps me feel more robust. Yep. And I think does really help with my back, et cetera. Um, I like to walk, which I really enjoy. Again, I find those things work for me, and mm-hmm. that's probably the key point is identify what works for you. Yeah. And then on every other day, I'll sit on the bike in the gym for about an hour. and yep. So I, I do something for about an hour or so every day, and that i found that's really been a great Keeps you ticking over. for me. Keeps Absolutely. You yeah. do you have a, young. Do you have a dog, Hamie? Uh, we have a couple of dogs, actually. Yeah. Do, you, so. do you walk them? 
I do at different yeah. times, but they're the kids' dogs, so they oh, need to be walking them and looking after enough, them. Fair enough. Um, yeah, well. But yeah, but you know, pretty fortunate. I live in a great place. There's lots of space and lots of opportunity to get out and about. Back to the rowers, uh, we've been talking a little bit about their training and how they need to look after themselves with, say, soft tissue massage and um, physio and eating well. Psychology is another huge part of performing at an elite level and we talked about grit and I think you you know, do you know Amber Halliday who I interviewed? I do, yes, I yeah. do indeed. Um, so she set up an excellent business called She Thrives in Sport, which promotes resilience, performance and well-being for female athletes. So she's taken everything that she learnt and she said she wished that she'd known this when she was training at an elite level. So what kind of support do your athletes have um, around their mental well-being? Yeah, look, we're, we're quite fortunate in, in many respects. We um we, we get great support through Sport Australia and the AOS in mm -hmm. terms of um, funding that helps with the engagement of a, um, a role called an athlete wellbeing person who, who works with our senior athletes, um, assists them with their studies and, and other aspects of transitioning into our two national training yeah. centres and that. Um, we obviously have a good admin team around as well that supports and, and tries to make um, the life of the athlete as good as it can be. Um, we also have access to the um, AOS uh, Mental Health Referral Network as well that has been set up in, in recent years, which provides access for athletes. And both historically and currently, you know, if, if there are some challenges for athletes and things, whatever they might be, we always look to provide access to the appropriate um, service and or practitioner to support that. Part of the challenge, and if there are anything like me, is you didn't always go and seek that out. Um, no, but I yeah. do think that things have changed a bit and people are more aware of and, yeah. and there is more support available. So Absolutely. it does sound like your athletes have access to everything they they need, which is great. Yeah. yeah. Look, we have been fortunate in that regard and, and, you know, I can only commend those organisations and our own for continuing to invest in that space and yeah. area. Yeah, um, it's so I think important. It's, it's so vital and critical that, you know, young people, men and women are well supported off the playing field. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that, that psychological well-being is critical and that is whether it's about ensuring they're well set up for the future, um, whether it's about performance aspects yeah. or, or just other life aspects. The yeah. reality is as human beings, we're pretty complex creatures um, and we live in an ecosystem that has lots of things getting thrown at it Absolutely. all the time. Um, and to think that, you know, those things don't have an impact or play a role um, on performance um, is a bit foolhardy. So yeah. the more we can do in that space, uh, I think the better. Yeah, absolutely agree. And, Hamie, perhaps you can help me with a rumour that I heard once was that at the AIS the rowers eat the most food of all the athletes. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> I reckon it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't be too far off the mark. And um, it's interesting you say when I first moved there and I was only young, 18 years old, and, and I went into, you know, this professional sort of training environment, um, and I can remember just losing enormous amounts of weight by just the sheer volume of work that yeah. I was doing all of a sudden compared to what I'd been doing previously. And I literally couldn't keep the weight on. Amazing. Uh, and I remember going to see the nutritionist at the time and she said, look, I don't say this to many people, but you have, um, you know, <laughs> you have a pass to eat anything and everything you can and as <laughs> much as you can because we just need to stop you losing all this weight. And so literally, oh, you, lucky man. you know, I would have these meals that were sort of almost, you know, well, well, ridiculous in some respects. But that's what I needed to do in terms of to fuel yeah. myself to do, you know, those 12, 14-plus sessions a week, um, the volume of work, plus being young and growing and, yeah, all, and all those types of things. Um, so we ate huge quantities of food oh, well, Hamie, every single meal. may or may not remember this, but when we were at an InterVarsity competition in Queensland and we'd finished and we, a group of us were staying at um, a hotel on the Gold Coast, I think, and yep. 
we'd been out and we came back to the hotel and I I do remember you consuming a whole box of Sultana bran and a loaf of bread as a Easy. snack. <laughs> Easy. That was usually before bed. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I do, I think about it now and I'm, thankfully my eating habits have changed in terms of quantity. Um, but I was always an athlete who was mindful of eating. And as I said to you, our, our coach, Reinhold Barchi, was really particular about, you know, you don't put... He used to use the the term or analogy, you don't put diesel into a Ferrari. So, you know, put the right fuel in for the right job that was at hand. And so the AOS was a fabulous place because obviously the food was prepared, um, it was well managed, you had access to it, there was lots of it. And, you know, the athletes who were fortunate enough to be there were able to do that. And, yeah, rowers definitely took advantage of that. (laughs) Well, sounds like you needed to. So, Hamie... Back to the, the present, how has COVID-19 affected or impacted the the program? Yeah, quite significantly and, and you know, but again, as I say, we, we are sport. We're not, you know, it's not life and death per se. So yeah. there's so many horrible things that are happening. It's such a challenging environment for people. Um, in saying that, though, as you can imagine, young people like those in rowing and other Olympic sports, you know, had, had in, in essence for many of them, they had a boarding pass stamp saying you're going to the Games yeah. in Tokyo and then all of a sudden it's gone. Oh. Um, so that that's heartbreaking and we need to thinking about the, the mental and the psychological well-being of our young people and it yeah. clearly has an impact and that's an important thing to recognise. Um, it, it, and it was already having an impact because even before that that moment, you could tell there was you know things were happening in the world, and it was clear that, um, or I felt it was becoming clear that you know, gee, this, the games this year is going to be a pretty hard ask. Um, yeah. So it's had that massive impact on our senior athletes, but not only that, all our underage athletes as well um, would normally have world championships this year, and they've all been cancelled, of course. Um, it's also meant that we've had no competition. Um, people have had to modify training significantly. Yeah. They're, they're not been able to train in some instances. We were talking about the strength and conditioning before. That has been a, a really big one that's changed because yeah. access to gyms has been limited. Um, we've had to go out of big boats down to small boats, um, lots of ergometer use. So there's actually some benefits in this too. Funnily enough, there's always some blessings and benefits, and that is young people doing more work in the single, accessing the ergometer mm-hmm. more. Um, and so we've actually seen some positives from a training perspective. Yeah. But the biggest one is just that con- connectivity and that ability to yeah. be around other people, to share stories, to have a hot choppy or go for a walk with someone or just be in that banter in a, in a training environment that's really quite positive and, and uplifting and healthy from a psychological perspective and that, that's been the biggest impact. Um, our two national training centres thankfully have been able to reactivate when, when that was allowed in the two oh, states. Um, so they've been training, um, you know, we have strict COVID guidelines that we follow, we've minimise the number of non-essential high-performance staff in the two mm-hmm. centres. So it's really just the core group, the athletes and their coaches and, and some of the support staff. Um, so we've done lots of things to try and ensure that they are safe environments for the yeah. athletes um, so they can keep training. And, you know, they've had to reposition, pivot, sort of change their, their goals and prepare for what we hope might be a Games in 2021. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it's been massive from the sounds of it. I mean, I know even personally I have a few races in my diary that have been cancelled, they're triathlons, yep. and it's quite demotivating. So, Absolutely. you know, that's another thing really I tough. guess you're having to deal with. And, and especially in elite sport when you, you know, as you said, you periodise your training so you're building right up to it and then your event goes away you know when's the next one coming what do you do it it's quite tricky to manage i think absolutely it is yeah and look you know that's i certainly take my hat off to the athletes um and obviously the staff around them just to really working hard with them but you know the athletes it's such a big impact on them and their oh, lives huge. um keep in mind in the context we're, we're talking about sport obviously um but it still is a really important thing that they have been working hard for. They've been striving for it. Lots of them have put lots of things on hold. Yes. Um, 
you know, relationships and travel and studies and work and careers and things like that oh, to, to strive for this opportunity to represent their country. And I mean, when um, I, I know you said it's just sport, but I think it has such a huge impact on uh, the psyche of the country. You know, watching Australians perform well at the Olympics is very uplifting. So Absolutely. it's um, yeah. I think it's a, a really important part of the Australian identity is, you know, we love our sports people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, know, yeah. And, um, you know, we just obviously we acknowledge everything that's happening in the country and around the world. Oh, and, yeah, I you know. know. It's you, just... Uh, you it's... keep that in perspective of what, what you do and don't do. Absolutely. You're quite right. And so, Hamie, who inspires you? Yeah, it's a good question. It's interesting. I've been asked that recently a couple of times. And um, clearly there's, there's, there's these wonderful athletes that have, um, and we're just talking about you know, how inspiring sport is yeah. the olympic games as one of the biggest events in the world um yeah look and, and i look at those amazing athletes that attend or compete in, in sports all around the world um and you know i admire what they can do but probably for me interestingly enough it's the, the people that are, are inspire me and i admire most are those who are the selfless sort of um people who give of themselves they, they don't ask of anything they They've often that battler who's scraping and crawling for every yeah. last sort of centimetre or inch that they get in life. Um, I guess I'm quite pragmatic and I think my family was is that way as well. So I look at those and I think about my father who, um, you know, he was a tradesman, he emigrated from Spain to Australia, had to learn another language, yeah. had to um, transfer his trade Um you know, work six, seven days a week, 12, 14 hours a day um, just to make sure that you could survive. Yes. Um, let alone anything else. Um, and then I look inside my own sport and I see the wonderful servants of the sport who have just devoted themselves. And I've mentioned Ronald Parchi mm -hmm. a number of times. You know, he, what he gave to our sport, you know, just how determined and, and desperate he was for us to achieve things and to get great outcomes, not, not himself. Um, so those selfless leaders, um, we lost a great gentleman in Dr. Stephen Hinchy in recent times who devoted decades of his life to the sport. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have him as a team doctor. Um, he, you know, he, he's done everything in, in the sport at the same time as being an MD. Um, yeah. So they're the people who inspire me. Mm -hmm. um, they're the people who make me go, wow, you know, how they do that, how they're so giving. And that yeah. servant leadership model, I guess, is... Yeah, the it's, a, it's, um, it's a pretty wonderful way to live your life, I think, isn't it, to be giving? Um, oh, I think so. Yeah. You get so much back, I, I find, when you do. Yeah. Um, and that's not even why why you do it, is it? But that's just a very no, happy no. byproduct of it. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, and, that, and they're the sort of people who, I guess, inspire me when I, when I look at that and what they devote in the cause for, for others is, is something that's really quite special. Yeah, and I think you see that on many levels. So um, for me and the local triathlon club I'm a member of, some of the people there, they're all volunteers. They devote so much time and effort to organising things for the rest of us. They're just excellent humans. <laughs> yeah, look, in our sport, I think, probably like lots of sports like, like rowing is so have been so reliant on um, volunteers and yeah. volunteerism throughout its history. Um, and, and then you look at mums and dads who, you know, are devoted and committed to getting their, you know, their children to sport and all those types of things. And they're the things that I think are really special. Um, yeah. And I know. think the rowing parents, and I'll put swimming in this category as well, Absolutely. deserve a shout out because they are <laughs> often getting up really early. Well and truly, and that's yeah. part of our job, isn't it, as parents, is it's just to be there, to, yeah. to do those things, to support and for our children to know that, you know, no rain, hail or shine, we're backing them for them yes. to do whatever it is that they want to do. So, you know, I take my hat off because I think I talked about those stakeholders before being yes. the state organisation, the National Institute Network, ourselves. But, you know, the key stakeholders are obviously the people like the mums, the dells, the volunteers, you know, the athletes that invest in our support as well. And that's why I think I, I, I feel so privileged to, to do what I do 
and I probably work with 90% of our sport in terms of the participants. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a real honour to do that because when you look at the investment that people make, it's it's quite significant. It, it is indeed. Um, and so, Hamy, I think um, it's probably time to land this plane. So I'll ask <laughs> um, my final question, which is, if you could recommend two things that all people could do to improve their well-being, what would they be? It's an interesting one. Um, look, I... I think taking care of oneself is a really important thing. And for me, as we talked about, you know, that ability to um, be surrounded by friends and family mm. um, is really positive and uplifting. Um, but also staying physically active yeah. um, and engaged um, because I think that has not only the benefits for you physically but mentally, emotionally. And often it might mean too that you connect with others when you do it. Yeah, um, and so they're, totally agree. they're probably the things that I would always sort of um, – pin my hat on and, and want to do myself. Um, certainly won't be so presumptuous to tell others what to do. No, um, no, but just but, your, you know, your, your opinion. Yeah, and, and that's always been me, you know. I love to do things with others. I always love the camaraderie and the friendships that came with being involved in sport. That hasn't changed. Um, so that's something I still look for and crave. Um, and I, I find being able to go out and being physically active to do those things is just this wonderful complimentary thing that occurs. Yes, I'm um, with you there. And so, Hamie, if someone's interested in having a look at what Rowing Australia does, where should they look? What What's the website? Yeah, look, um, there's obviously Rowing Australia has its website and um, it has all our contacts on there. Um, so you can certainly go to that. There's also Instagram. I'm not the greatest um, social media expert going around. <laughs> I'm probably still a bit of a Luddite when it comes to that. Oh, you've um, got kids. They can help uh, you. Yeah, that. well, yeah. I may even be advanced than them. They're real bush kids, so <laughs> they're probably worse <laughs> than me. Um, but, no, look, the Rowing Australia website, there's the Instagram as well. Um, so, you know, there's, there's always lots of different articles. You can go on there and subscribe or obviously you can like there's the um, Facebook page as well Great. where you find lots of interesting, fun articles, um, information, education. Um, but if you're wanting to actually talk to one of us, then I'd, I'd direct you to the website itself Great. at rowingaustralia.com.au um, and you would find our contacts yeah. in there and we'll always love to chat to, chat to you particularly about rowing. Yes. Excellent. Well, I'll put links to that in the show notes. So, Hamie, thank yep. you so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed chatting with you and uh, remembering all those wonderful rowing times that uh, that we had. Absolutely. No, thank you, Amanda. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. And that was the inspiring, warm and accomplished Hamie Fernandez. Thank you for listening today. And I do hope you found the interview interesting if you did, please share the podcast and tell your friends about it. And if you could take a minute to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it will help people find my podcast. If you would like to subscribe to my podcast, Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, you can subscribe on all good podcast providers like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Spreaker, Overcast, iHeartRadio and Google Podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Sim simply click the red subscribe button. Please follow me on Instagram and Facebook and check out my website at www.amandaswellbeingpodcast.com where you can contact me via the contacts page. Feel free to suggest topics you'd like to learn more about and people you'd like to hear interviewed and I'll do my best to deliver that to you. Producing the podcast is a labour of love. It has become my full-time job to which I dedicate a lot of time, money and effort if you enjoy my podcast and would like to support it, I would be so grateful. You can make monthly or one-off contributions via my Patreon page or via PayPal from the support page on my website. I'll put a link in the show notes and please do check it out. Another way you can support my podcast is by purchasing a book from the book reviews page on my website. If you click the Amazon link on my books page and buy a book at no extra cost to you, I receive a small commission. Thank you very much for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.